0: Welcome to Question Period, I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, Barricade Breaking Point. It is extremely uh, concerning to see people endangering their own lives and the lives of others by trying to interfere with uh, with the trains. But uh, again, we are continuing to work very hard to resolve this. Protesters in Tainginaga set fires along railway tracks as trains pass through the Mohawk Territory. How does the federal government enforce the law if more rail barricades pop up? And is it an act of terrorism, as Erin O'Toole claims? To talk about that and the Alberta challenge on the carbon tax and the big changes coming to the law around medical-assisted dying, the Justice Minister, David Lametti joins us. Plus, former premiers Christy Clark and Kathleen Wynne weigh in on whether the pipeline project is in jeopardy. And then prepared for a pandemic?
1: Globally, there's a higher likelihood that we'll see an outbreak in Canada. So although today, uh, very few people are at risk in terms of actually contracting the coronavirus, that could change.
0: The World Health Organization is warning of a global pandemic as the coronavirus continues to spread, sparking hotspots in Iran, Japan, South Korea, Italy. Is Canada prepared for the coronavirus to come here? And is it time to start stockpiling supplies, as the health minister suggested? MPs are here to debate the best way to fight a virus we still don't know a lot about. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. So some trains may be moving, but the dramatic disruptions continue. In a shocking video, a CN Rail train is seen narrowly missing a group of demonstrators who lit fires near the tracks and threw snowballs. Since the main blockade on the Times Mohawk Reserve came down, new ones keep popping up, and there have been numerous arrests at large scale protests on downtown streets, a commuter rail line in Toronto, and at the BC legislature. Now, the opposition says the government's weak. They're not enforcing the law. But how can they actually do that? And should the protesters be treated like terrorists? as Conservative leadership candidate Aaron O'Toole says. To talk about that and the massive changes coming around the law, around medical assistance and dying, we're joined now by the Justice Minister, David Lamani. Minister, great to see you. Good to be here. Uh, The opposition says the government's weak. The protesters are making a mockery of the rule of law, and they can break the law with impunity, and your government is doing nothing. What's your response to that as a Justice Minister?
2: Well, I think all of that's untrue. The only, way, the only way we could get through this situation, what we have said from the beginning, is through dialogue. The only way we can get to any kind of solution or any set of solutions that's in any way permanent, that prevents these kinds of, of, of protests from happening down the road, that moves us further down the road of reconciliation, is through dialogue, and that's what we're doing. We try to set up the conditions for fruitful dialogue, and it's happening.
0: But and what does that mean? I mean, you can understand there are some Canadians out there saying these guys are breaking the law with impunity. They're blockading, injunctions aren't being enforced, and the government's response is dialogue. Isn't the law to something to be enforced in order to be governable?
2: Well, look, the law is the law, and we have said that that injunction, injunctions had to be respected, and the law has to be respected. And... But from the perspective of First Nations, they're also looking to settle uh, disputes that they've had, uh, in some cases, uh, for over 100 years. And so they are, they are impatient. N- Non-Indigenous peoples are impatient. Uh, the only way to get through that is, is by talking.
0: But, but when there's a blockade... Uh, you know, of, of CN lines, the economy's coming to a halt. Some people are saying, look, we appreciate there needs to be lots of work on on rights and title and land, tr- 100%. But once you take that kind of action, doesn't the government... I mean, eventually Justin Trudeau said, okay, we got to uh, take the barricades down. But it took him two weeks to say that. Why couldn't he have sent that signal and you sent that signal in day one?
2: Right. Well, look, we... we- we certainly know the economic impact that the barricades have, have had on on average Canadians uh, and, and important sectors of our economy. So we understand that's important, and we understand it's important getting to a solution. And Prime Minister came out and said the barricades had to come after down after two weeks. And Minister Blair had been saying that beforehand as well, and, and saying that the that the law had to be respected, as as we all were. Um, but we need to we need to solve this in a way that. Points us towards the future, so that these things just don't keep happening are, again and again a signal and again.
0: To other protesters, look, we can block barricade trains with impunity. This government's going to talk. They're going to talk, 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 and you can keep doing it, and that's why they keep popping up.
2: No, I don't think so. I think I think we're trying to get at the fundamental issue. CGL has has put a pause on its on its work. The RCMP has repositioned itself, so all of a sudden we're in a space where we can talk about this, and our and our Mohawk friends in Ganawage are saying we're watching what happens there. Uh, and yeah, but are a-
0: okay. But their barricades are still up. And I, what about Aaron O'Toole? When Aaron O'Toole, leadership candidate, lawyer, wants to be the prime minister, he says he looked at those videos that we just showed our audience there, right. and he says the people that are throwing things at trains—they look like they're trying to derail a train or lighting fires—should be treated as terrorist acts and as terrorists. You're the justice minister. Is he right?
2: Well, I, I think an act of stupidity like like getting in the way of a train or throwing a snowball at the train, which is exceptionally dangerous, puts your own life in danger. Far from an act of terrorism, there's a lot of hyperbole uh, that's being added, you know, fuel throwing onto the fire uh, by uh, various people. That's not going to help us get to a solution. What will help but us but get isn't to a solution, a solution?
0: Clearly, if you're tossing pallets near a speeding train. If there's a derailment, what is that?
2: If there are criminal, if there are, are criminal acts, there are criminal acts, and, and they will be prosecuted.
0: Minister, uh, the Minister of Justice in Alberta, Doug Schweitzer, I talked to him, they are about to pass a law called the Critical Infrastructure Defence designating all sorts of things, quote, critical infrastructure, railways, roads, other things, and if people blockade them, there will be fines and other issues. They are asking you to do the same thing on a federal level and change the criminal code. What's your response to that?
2: Well, anytime we look at legislation in in any matter, any similar matter, you have to look at uh, you have to look at. Uh, Rights of freedom of expression, rights of free assembly. Uh, You have to try to balance those rights against public safety and public security. Things we always do. In their case, well, in their case, I would also, I would also have to see the structure of of their law in order to see whether it infringed on the federal criminal law power.
0: Well, can people? I mean, what is it? Does the right of free assembly allow people to block roads in cities and barricade roads if there's an injunction, or even stand near railway lines and light fires? Is that freedom of assembly?
2: Well, there's there's never one cut-and-dry answer to that question. It all depends on context. And we do value peaceful assembly. We do right. value freedom of expression in Canada. These are fundamental to Canadian society.
0: Uh, the Alberta government also challenged the, uh, in the Alberta Court of Appeals they concluded an a four-to-one decision that the federal carbon tax is unconstitutional It violates the jurisdiction of the province. Doug Schweitzer uh, said this to me. Not only does he want you to immediately repeal the federal carbon tax, but check out what he just said. They have real governance questions to ask themselves. When you, as a board of governors, you perpetuate an unlawful act, you could potentially face personal liability. What is that federal cabinet doing right now with an unlawful act? The highest court in Alberta said that this is unlawful. They're now willingly imposing an illegal act on the people of Alberta. They should take that into consideration. They might want to talk to their insurer as well. So there's doug schweitzer saying if they win in the supreme court guys like you and the rest of the ministry better get lawyers because you might be financially liable for the da- financial damages what do you make of that is he right
2: well that's a that's a pretty novel argument about liability uh, i would point out to 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 uh, attorney general schweitzer that albertans the average family of four in alberta is already getting 888 dollars back on the federal carbon tax this year um, look the, the supreme court uh is going to settle the matter uh, as as I think uh, Mr. Schweitzer knows, and everyone else knows, uh, the, both the Ontario Court of Appeal and the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal uh, have held that that federal carbon tax is constitutional. Uh, there was a strong dissent in the Alberta Court, uh, maintaining that position as well. So we're hoping that they'll settle this finally. Um, and but Cana- no show Canadians,
0: personal liability though, just just real quick, you're the justice minister. Is there any case law that says a minister could be financially liable for a law that, uh, that is rejected?
2: Uh, not that I know of. Not, not, okay. not for a law that isn't passed in, in bad faith.
0: Uh, Canada's assisted dying laws are being overhauled, as the courts have said. And I just want to, they're opened up for more serious and incurable diseases uh, or disability, not just those with uh, reasonable, foreseeable death, which has been. Correct. You didn't vote for it originally because you thought it was too restrictive. Uh, let me just ask you, are you concerned now that some people will be able to avail themselves of medically assisted death and the check and balances are just too loose?
2: No, I think we've done a good job uh, getting the appropriate checks, checks and balances depending on the, on the circumstance, either in the end-of-life uh, setting or in the, the, the non-end-of-life setting. We, we have a different set of balances in each case. We've loosened up the balance in the end-of-life scenario because we listen to canadians we listen to experts tell us that some of the things that we had put in there in 2016 simply weren't serving the role that they were meant to serve uh, and that then on the other hand in the non-end-of-life scenario we have tried to balance uh... the th- We've tried to balance that additional right with, with some extra uh, responsibilities, particularly on the part of, of doctors. So,
0: so, so it's interesting. And I remember Audrey Parker, the woman who availed herself of medical assistance dying, and she fought hard to say, look, if I lose my capacity in a reasonable foreseeable death, I won't be able to do that. Now they can do that, right? So yeah. my question is, how far in advance can you waive consent in the time of death?
2: Well, that's something that that uh, that we didn't define in the legislation. Uh, we're going to we're going to leave. Remember that the Audrey Parker, and we're proud of added the Audrey Parker scenario. I think that's one of the most important aspects of this for me personally to to have added that. Right. She touched us all, uh, and and we're glad she didn't die in vain. Um, we in the non end of life scenario, it's already so it's already framed by the by the end of life scenario, the Audrey Parker uh, amendment, and then. It will be up to a doctor and a patient to determine a date at which they want uh, medical assistance. But you're waiving die to the happen.
0: 10 day reflection period. So, does that, because do maybe someone's in a depression. Don't you think a 10-day reflection period gives people a time to reflect upon what is the, the most important decision they may ever make?
2: What we found, speaking to experts and, and, and service providers and patient advocates, is that the 10-day f- reflection period was not operating as a safeguard. The, the real work in making the decision came before that. All the 10-day reflection period did... Was forced people to suffer for another ten days. In some cases, they weren't taking their medicine, their pain medication, in order to have a clear mind ten days later to make the final uh, to make to give the final consent. It wasn't serving any kind of balancing or safeguard purpose, so we'd, we've eliminated it.
0: All right, Mr. Lemay, I got to leave it there. I really appreciate this. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. That's your uh, Minister of Justice. Coming up next, is Canada prepared for a COVID-19 pandemic? And what about the economic costs? MPs are standing by next to debate that. Stay right here with Question Period. Coronavirus is gripping the globe. As you know, there are confirmed cases in nearly every continent in some 48 countries, including here in Canada. But as the government and the world grapples with the major public health crisis which has killed thousands, plunged the markets. How should the Canadian government react and how should you plan ahead? Is the government's tone that the risk remains low the right one? And what about these new travel advisories and health procedures? Do they need to be put in place to keep us safe? Are we prepared for a pandemic? Let's bring in MPs to find out. Sean Fraser is a Liberal MP from Nova Scotia and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Finance. Garnet Genius is a Conservative MP from Alberta. And Don Davies, the NDP health critic for in British Columbia. Great to have all of you on the program, Mr. Fraser. I just gotta start with you. The government keeps saying the risk is low. The health minister then sort of said, hey, by the way, in case things happen, stock up. Looks like your government has, has kind of changed the message was that a confusing message? What are you saying to us now?
3: Uh, certainly. And look, where, where the message that the risk remains low comes from is, is not dreamt up in closed doors behind a politician's office. This is coming on the advice of chief medical officers of, of the country and of, of the various provinces. Uh, the messaging may have changed a little bit because our focus has had to shift uh, from uh, being worried about repatriating, repatriating Canadians who are in affected parts of the world uh, to making sure that we're prepared for the potential spread within Canada. So
0: what does the stock up mean? Like, so, is, this, so is, it, is that a change?
3: <laughs> uh, no, really the advice uh, is going Good advice for any kind of uh, uh, interruption to normal life. It's the same kind of advice that you'll hear public safety pass on in provinces, territories, and across Canada when you're dealing dealing with a, a severe weather event. Uh, I know at home when we had a recent hurricane a few months back, uh, you you walk through the grocery store aisle and you realize that everybody's taking precautions. Uh, so if yeah, you but, have but, a but need is for that
0: is that a fair? I, I mean, I, uh, is this a fair analogy? Uh, we got 50 million people in quarantine. You got the WHO on the highest level of it. What do you make of the government's messaging on this?
4: Well, I think what people expect from a competent government is clarity of communications unfortunately we haven't seen that that competence or that clarity where uh, there has been a wide variation of of tone from the opposition in what what way well I, i mean again saying don't worry at the beginning and and making a decision not to take precautions that some other countries had taken uh, U.S., Australia, other countries had taken stronger precautions like than what? we had. Uh, well, uh, stronger screening, uh, limiting flights, those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, from the opposition perspective, you know, we we are asking questions. We expect the government to consult with the expertise they have and make the decisions. But it's, it's a legitimate question to ask. You know, why are we doing things that are different from other countries? And then there's this wild swing in terms of tone, saying it's time to stock up. Uh, Canadians, in, in the midst of a, a crisis like this, they do expect uh, clear, consistent communication from the government, which is going to going to elevate or decrease a little bit depending on the risk. But I think, unfortunately, we haven't seen that, that clarity in terms of messages, and, and we need to have a, have a better job from government around that. Don Davies, you've
0: been on committees on this. Uh, this has been an evolving situation, to be fair. Every day there's an update. H- how would you calibrate the government's response?
5: Well, I, I think both Sean and Garnet are correct in, in a sense. I mean, I, I, I think it, it was the proper tone at the beginning to be evidence-based and, and to try to keep people... Uh, calm and and moving with uh, um, you know with with I think caution Uh, but Garnet's also I think nailed it by saying that it's important that we have clarity of communications and we're not seeing that look the WHO today just upgraded the risk of uh, COVID-19 from high to very high Um, for the first time ever we see the number of new cases of COVID-19 outside of China exceeding the number of new cases inside China and I think it's quite clear that the government without ever having said so or preparing the context has moved from a policy of containment to one of preparation for a potential uh, outbreak of pandemic. And uh, when they haven't prepared the population for that, um, I think that that's that's created a necessary alarm in the population. I think every politician is hearing that at the constituency level.
0: What about the economics side? you're the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Finance. You guys are developing a budget right now. I keep hearing this could cause a recession. there's a slowdown. this is impacting the second largest economy in the world. China, Europe's on edge now. people aren't traveling. Are is your government factoring in coronavirus for the slowed growth that we've already experienced in the next budget?
3: Uh, we're certainly watching what's transpiring. It's it's too early and too dynamic a situation to say, this is exactly what we need to be budgeting for. I think there's uh, certain certain areas that uh, uh, predominantly and disproportionately rely on export to affected regions like China that I think we're gonna have to watch. But are you expecting
0: uh, a slowdown? Is it fair to say your government is now expecting that we're gonna have a couple quarters of slowdown because of coronavirus? I,
3: I don't think we have the evidence to say that that's the, the likely outcome. I think it's something that we do need to be mindful of. Anytime you have a global disruption to, uh, to to the world economy it's something you have to watch out for uh, but I think it's far too early and too fluid a situation to say yes this is the but likely result
0: I guess so I, I guess my question is are you preparing for it because you don't want to be reactive you want to be prepared what's your sense of it
4: yeah well I would just say when it comes to the economy there are some things that the government can c- control and there are some things they can't so obviously the, the global outbreak of uh, coronavirus that's going to have an impact on the economic uh, situation and that's something that uh, is largely beyond the control of the government but it's the sort of thing you have to be prepared for I think by building something cushion into your budgeting. Uh, The government is running massive deficits beyond what they had committed uh, for all of the years of their mandate, uh, which means we're not in as good a position to sail into an economic uh, storm. Uh, But there's obviously things that that they are doing, that are hurting our economy, that are within their control. Uh, a failure to respond effectively to the, to the blockades. Uh, you know, the, the uh, failure to proceed of major natural resource projects while similar large investments are being made in, in other jurisdictions. So uh, the things we can control and the things we can't, but on the things we can, can control, uh, we haven't really seen the government planning ahead or supporting economic development. Don
0: Davis, what's your sense of that? Should there be, uh, I don't know, is this the moment where that rainy day fund that we've all talked about will come into play?
5: Well, a uh, hundred percent, uh, they they should be preparing for it. Watching is not the same as preparing. And let's face it; I mean, I could probably name you two dozen uh, factors that are beyond the the uh, ability of a government to control that impact economic progress. So, it, it, you know, this is not any different than any number of, of of global events that I think any government must be prudent in preparing for. So, so. Uh, look, we have the, the Chinese economy has effectively been shut down for a month. The second largest economy in the world, as you pointed out, that anybody who woke up and looked at the stock market today, you know, we've had uh, you know r- a record drop, um, at least in, in, in quite some time. Um, so obviously the COVID-19 uh, uh, virus is already affecting the economy and I, I, I'm actually a little bit shocked that uh, to hear from Liberals that they have not, are not building that factor in, at least to their forecasts and expectations. This has to affect um, all sorts of assumptions that they're making about the economy going forward.
0: The big question was always for your government. You know, you're running up massive deficits, you blew through your promise, and what happens when there's a slowdown, what's going to happen then? This could be the slowdown. What's the contingency plan?
3: Well, if you actually look at the uh, PBO report that came out yesterday, it it draws great attention to the fact that our fiscal position is is actually quite healthy. It's the healthiest balance sheet in the G7. If you look at uh, Minister Morneau's uh, mandate letter, you'll actually see that one of the things he's been tasked to do is to preserve the fiscal room to respond uh, with firepower in the event that we do face a downturn. Uh, So whether it was uh, coronavirus or some other factor globally beyond the government's control... what's the
0: firepower? More debt?
3: Uh, look, to be able to respond it would, uh, to a given circumstance, the, the strategy that you employ would depend on, on the particular events, uh, but if it, it takes a, a change to uh, either a fiscal policy with an injection of, of uh, federal dollars that are going to help kickstart the economy, or uh, if, if it takes uh, monetary policy measures led by the Bank of Canada, which is independent of the government of course, uh, to free up capital for, for business to develop, there, there's different options available. Uh, but the reality is we've, we've been planning for uh, the potential uh, of a downturn in the future, we have the, uh, the fiscal room to, to act if need be.
0: All right, guys, i got to leave it there. Uh, thanks to Sean Fraser, Garnet Genus, and uh, Don Davies. Coming up, though, supporters of the Wet Sweat and Hereditary Chiefs show no signs of stopping, even as police have made more arrests to enforce these injunctions. What is the way forward? Two former premiers, Kathleen Wynne and Christy Clark, join us next with their view on the situation. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. So the opposition keeps calling the Liberal government weak as these blockades go on and on. But what are the real options? How can this finally resolve itself? Let's bring in two former premiers to find out. Kathleen Wynne is the former premier of Ontario and Christy Clark is the former premier of British Columbia. Welcome to both of you. i got to start with you, Christy Clark, because at the heart of the... uh, pipeline and the blockade dispute, of course, is what's going on in the Wet'suwet'en nations and who has jurisdiction to give the green light for the pipeline. Some of the hereditary chiefs say, we do. Some of the elected chiefs saying, sorry, this has been going on for a long time. What's your take on how to understand this dispute and where it's heading?
6: Well, I mean, I think it's important for Canadians to remember that in the Wet'suwet'en community and a lot of northern Indigenous communities, they're really remote. And on the farthest west part of Canada... Contact came fairly late, and residential school experience is very recent. And so the the sense of tradition in those communities is something that was really, um, the history of that, the memory of that, I think, isn't as strong or entrenched as it could have been, and or as it is in other communities. And so that's really meant that there's a lot of confusion up in Wet'suwet'en. But I, I mean, I, knowing a, f- a little bit about the place, having been there and, and worked with the folks there, I mean, we were negotiating this LNG deal from... 2011 until 2017, um, the deal that's there that has been tested in 15 elections um, in the community is properly done. According to the Federal Court of Appeal, it is legally binding or legally done. There is no opportunity for veto. And, you know, it's really sad that politicians are kind of, that that political events across the country have kind of gotten ahead of it and sort of turned it into something else. Because really what's, what I think is happening is I think that politicians and politics and journalists and the whole situation is really doing a lot more to break up a community that is really, really trying to find its way back rather than supporting it but, and trying to get there.
0: Well, Kathleen, well, let me bring you in because the solidarity protests really uh, changed the dynamic of this that happened in Tynes and Aga Belleville area with the Mohawk and, and also some in Quebec. Fires being set on, on railway lines causing major delays. What's your take? Because a lot of Canadians think, why isn't there more enforcement? Why are why is this going on for so long? What, how, what's your take on how this resolves?
7: What I see happening is that there's been a conflation of a whole lot of issues. Um, which does not take away from the validity of any of them, quite frankly, from my perspective. Um, I think that, you know, we're um, we're hearing conflict within the community, so starting right at that level, and that's, I think Christy's talking about the confusion, but it speaks to the the problems in the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous people between the the canadian government and the uh... the traditional governments and we have not sorted that out evan and i think that the um, the polarization between the you know we've got to knock some heads and make this stop, and we've got to just talk forever. I mean, it, it's it's somewhere, you know, it, the the process is somewhere in between. Yes, of course, people have to be kept safe. And that's what law enforcement has been trying to do. But the only way through to a better relationship is to have these conversations. That is the only. Right. That's the only possible way that we can not inflame the situation
0: and make it worse. And, and I get that. But, Christy Clark, a lot of folks are looking at it and say, this was a natural gas pipeline, 20 elected chiefs supported, a lot of the hereditary chiefs over a decade uh, developing this thing. And the NDP government now supports it. A former liberal government supported this. And they wonder, can anything in this country get built at all? What, what's your answer
6: to that? That is a real question. And a lot of us just think that this is really a warm up for the next big pipeline debate, which is going to be TMX when that gets going. And so I think I, there are two things looking backward. One is I do think a lot of people have been asking themselves if at the beginning the RCMP were more interested in reputation management than they were, um, you know, than they could have been in some of the law enforcement issues. Um, the second one, which I think is clearly an issue is, you know, I don't think we would have necessarily had this run right across the country, and as Kathleen aptly pointed out, become about a whole bunch of other issues, if the Prime Minister had come home to deal with it. You know, to this day neither the premier of British Columbia or the prime minister have been to meet with Wet'suwet'en, and their their position on it seems to be they don't want to go until they know what the outcome of the meeting is going to be. That's not how discussions with indigenous people can work anymore in Canada. We have to go in with open minds and open hearts and say, okay, look, let's work on this, but I do think it's a whole heck of a lot harder now that both the prime minister and the premier have left it so long And it's, you know, because it's really unspooled into a whole bunch of other uh, concerns. And, you know, I really, this plus the tech decision to withdraw the frontier mine um, from the approval process, I really, I ask myself, who would want to invest in Canada now, given the risk that they see out there of unlimited protest and and really kind of a low level of enforcement of the law? Uh, Kathleen, go ahead.
7: yeah well, I think you know I think that what happens over the next few days and weeks is going to be really critical to that, and I know Evan, you want to talk about the the economic uh realities of this and and they are very very real and so we need to we need to be very clear that this this is something that has to be resolved, but one of the things that worries me is it it actually reinforces something we've talked about before on the show, and that's the East-West divide, you know. And I think we have to, we have to be careful as Canadians that we uh, that we don't that we don't let this further um, polarize the country, and that's that's one of the things I'm worried about.
0: All right, I got to leave it there. Thanks so much to Kathleen Wynne and to Christy Clark. Coming up next. Some trains may be moving, but rail blockades are continuing, as we've just discussed. Some of them have gotten very dangerous. So is there an end in sight, and is there a political price to be paid? The Scrum is next with BC MLA and Indigenous leader Ellis Ross. Stay right here with Question Period.
3: I would, again, continue to urge people to, to take the barricades down, to obey the law, and... and Encourage the dialogue that we know is so important to continue.
0: All right, police have moved in. They've made some arrests, but the rail blockades and the anti pipeline protests are still showing no signs of stopping anytime soon. You got Mohawk demonstrators who lit fires on tracks near Belleville. The transport minister called that action reckless. An activist disrupted thousands of GO train passengers in the greater Toronto area, creating commuter chaos. How long can this go on? And as the situation grows a little more volatile, what should the government do? Does this project ever get built in British Columbia? The Scrum is here to find out. Stephanie Levitz is a reporter for the Canadian Press. Tanya McCharles is a senior reporter for the Toronto Star. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. And our special guest for this round is the B.C. Liberal MLA and former chief councillor for the Heisla Nation, Ellis Ross. Great to have all of you here. Alistair Ross, let me just start with you because there's been meetings going on. Everyone seems to have a, have an opinion on this. You know, there are activists who are saying we're lighting fires in support of the hereditary chiefs. They don't, uh, you know, the elected chiefs don't have any business making these decisions. What's your take on all this?
8: Well, I've been clear from day one. Uh, n- none of these uh, protesters or organizing protesters I've never really saw the detailed consultation record that was actually initiated under rights and Title case law for the last 15 years. I mean, and it's actually a detailed, uh, documented process. And the, the process actually runs alongside an official environmental assessment process. In fact, it, along the way, since 2004, First Nations from Prince George to Kitimat have actually been developing that process to breathe life into the Haida court case that came out in 2004. So, we actually helped develop that uh, back and forth dialogue.
0: So, just let me just stay with you real quick. So, when people say, hang on, the elected counselors only have jurisdiction over the reservations because they're creatures of the Indian Act and there's case law like, I don't know, 1997 Delgamat or 2014 Chilcotin case, they all say that the
8: hereditary chiefs can stop this. They do have authority. What do you say? How do you compare that with the idea that rights and title is actually held on behalf of the community? It belongs to the community. It doesn't belong to elected chief and council or elected chiefs or individuals or specific groups within the community. It belongs to the community as a whole. So I, I don't understand how you reconcile that.
9: I, I think there's a real issue. What, if anything, this thing has done is shown us that the the deep divisions in the Wet'suwet'en territory in the, among that nation are really at the heart of it. They haven't negotiated um, an understanding with BC and Canada on how they go forward. And look, it's not impossible. There are some 29 First Nations who are self-governing in Canada who have arrangements. All, all of them, I think, all of them have a combination of hereditary and elected chiefs who uh, work together and advance the nation's cause. So there, there is an issue there. They have to understand who speaks for them, and I think that's the thing that's bedeviled the government, the federal government, the BC government, and the rail companies and everybody for the last going on four weeks.
0: Steph, well, how, do, how do you read what's going on? Because there's not just that, the internal issues with the hereditary and the elected chiefs, but from the provincial and the federal government, they've they got to be wondering how they get anything built here. What, what is your sense of all this?
10: The question, you know, do they do sort of an after action here, to, to use a, a military term, right? Do they, once this resolves itself, however it might, do they have to go back to the drawing board and say, how did we let this get here? Because as LSO rightfully points out, there were years of consultations. Every box looked like it was ticked. So what piece of the puzzle, as government leaders, did they not see coming? And how do they rectify that problem going forward? Is it a question, as Tonder so rightly points out, of looking at other models of governance in between Indigenous communities, trying to facilitate that to avoid this problem? Because this isn't you know, the only time this will happen going forward if this country continues to follow a path of of major resource development.
11: And this is a huge test for Canada. If this fails, if for a reason, uh, and we're seeing it, uh, if these negotiations fall through, if this gets worse, if, if, if there's a 50 ifs, but if it fails, and it may very well fail then, we have to ask ourselves, what can we build in Canada? Are these projects going to be stopped every step of the way? all the time. Is this even possible? Is this possible that this fails and that this is what Canada has come to?
0: Alice, let me just go back to you on, on reconciliation on whether all this is setting it back or not. The protesters I talk to say, look, this is more than just about one pipeline. It's about the deeper issues. And they, you know, the old Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass expression, power concedes nothing without a demand. These are our demands for the government to pay attention. Is this setting back reconciliation or putting it on track?
8: It depends on whose definition you're using of reconciliation. If you're going with that Aboriginal rights and title case law on how to reconcile that rights and title with uh, the, the title of the crown and the larger society, then basically those documents are actually go-forward documents. It's not meant to fix the past 50, 100 years or so. And by the way, when reconciliation is used in terms of the case law definition, it says you've got to consult the heck out of First Nations. You've got to accommodate them. You've got to go beyond. But The crown still has to make a decision in light of the larger society. And the last thing I'll add about that is that when you're talking about the larger society, you're actually talking about aboriginals too, Mm -hmm. because we've all got economic projects that actually utilize the rail, the ports, the highways. We utilize the hospitals, so it's becoming a question of uh, what the judge said. We gotta reconcile because let's face it, none of us are going anywhere.
10: I think I think that's part of the issue too. I mean, when we talk about this 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 problem as intractable as it is from the outset. The question is, is the government and the language that's getting used around it? You know, Alice raises a really good point about this is the larger society question, and it's framed a lot by the opposition, by the government as well, as an us-and-them thing, that the Canadian government versus Aboriginal people, versus, versus, versus. And one wonders, to calm it a bit down, where's the part where we say let's talk about the greater good and the greater good encompassing all of the people that are affected by this not just picking off five hereditary chiefs or fourteen elected band councillors? can we sit down and say yeah. what's best for everyone
9: but i think that what this case shows also uh... in the larger picture is that there are some indigenous communities and some broader canadian communities who feel that it will never be resolved it'll always be us against them there are others who feel there's going to be some magic kumbaya moment where right. it will all magically be resolved but somewhere in the middle there's a lot of hard work and a lot of indigenous communities like alice ross just mentioned who want to develop resources to the benefit of their communities and i think that's the middle ground that maybe represents a majority amongst indigenous leaders and communities that we haven't he- heard from
11: Joyce, you know it's down to leadership and and probably legitimacy right and um Exactly. I, I agree. This is this is everybody's. This is not mine. This, this is mine. This is not yours. This is yours. This is everybody's. Everybody will benefit from this project. It's clear. A majority of people are for it and a majority of people think that we will benefit from this project and it needs to get done. Now, the question is, will we allow just for historic reasons or legitimacy reasons for this project to fall?
0: Uh- Alice Ross, what's your message to, you know, and I've talked to a lot of leaders who have a to- totally different view, the Mohawk leaders, uh, and what would your message be for the, the leaders who are running these blockades in places like Quebec and Ontario, and many people who are standing in solidarity with them? You're from the Heisla Nation, what would your message be to them?
8: Well, if you really want to stand up for our rights, watch uh, well, we did that job 15 years ago and we've been steadily increasing it. That's why we have so much success in communities like mine. And our ultimate goal was to get away from Indian Act funding. I mean, the rest of the Indian Act provisions don't even, aren't even relevant to us in today's day and age. It's only the dependency on the funding that's actually keeping us down. Rights and title has actually opened up a whole new world for us where we can actually bring in our own revenues, build our own apartments, build our own houses, or soccer fields and everything else. And it's a great feeling, you know, to say at some point in our future, no, Ottawa, we don't need your Indian Act funding. Take it away. All right, I, I got to leave it there.
6: We know in North America, because of the robust medical system we have, we've been able to contain, the risk is low. But if people are going in a zone, in an area, in a country which we already know there is an issue, uh, people should really think twice.
0: Federal government is telling Canadians to consider the coronavirus as they make travel plans for March break to make sure they do things like register with the government where they're going. The virus, of course, is spreading rapidly in countries like Italy, South Korea, Iran, as the World Health Organization warns of a global pandemic could be coming. So how is Canada preparing for an outbreak and what impact will the virus have on the global economy as quarantines are shutting down businesses and schools? To talk about that... And the Conservative leadership race, the Scrum is back, Stephanie Levitz is back, so is Tonda McCharles, Joyce Napier is back, and so is Sarah McIntyre. Great to have all of you guys here. All right, Sarah, let's start with you. Um, What do you make of the, the response? There's both a health response to the pandemic, but there's also a response on the economic side. How do you grade the government's response thus far?
1: Well, I think that they've been doing as much as they can and being available and providing information. I think that was one of the big lessons uh, from SARS is uh, having our medical officials uh, out there and providing as much information as often as possible so that there isn't a panic, but that people are actually prepared. and that, uh, you know, our hospitals and uh, uh, urban centres have their pandemic plans in place. There's, uh, you know, in places like Toronto, uh, where there has got a lot of urban population that are highly mobile, um, it's it's concerning. But I think the government's done a, a, as good a job as they can. I, like, I, what else uh, could you do? I mean, I think the difficulty of getting some of the c- uh, Canadians out of, of China, I think, was uh, if you're uh, those Canadians right. or those Canadians on... Um, On the cruise ships, you wouldn't be saying that. Uh, But, of course, then the markets just took a a complete nosedive. It was just a a slaughter uh, last week. Look, it's so unpredictable, right? I mean, who would
11: have thought a few days ago that Italy would be hit so hard by it, right? So, you know, you've got to expect the unexpected, definitely. But I think puzzling is what the uh, Minister of Health said this week uh, to Canadians stock up. What does that mean? Does that mean that if, if, if there is an outbreak in Canada, we won't be able to leave our homes, uh, the stores will be closed? What exactly mm-hmm. was the minister telegraphing to millions of canadians who are waiting for the government to say something and to inform
9: us i think that uh, around the messaging around that that a warning to canadians that you should get ready was confusing this week and it was a bit of a, a, a dip in the way that they've been doing things they've right. actually been quite uh... transparent about readiness they were communicating all the way through transporting canadians back uh... from far-flung place places where they were quarantined or faced exposure um, by and large, they've been communicating to the public well enough. I think what's worrying, given that it's so unpredictable, is what will happen when it hits remote and in indigenous communities, places where there isn't clean drinking water. Is the government, is, is Canada prepared for that? Mm-hmm. And those questions are being raised in the House of Commons. They were raised in the Health Committee this week. We don't have answers for those. I think we don't actually know what the emergency or contingency plans are. Maybe we don't need to know, well, but I'd like to know, know someone has more you know, I'd like the the to know someone the there has up. one. <laughs>
0: there's a pandemic plan unfortunately sure. when you read it there it's, it's literally you know hockey rinks will be used as morgues if it comes to that they right. don't want to release that cuz it freaks people out we are on the verge of a mm. budget this month too yes. and the the, the health is massive the economic fallout's already happening how does the government make a budget when we're getting warned that the coronavirus COVID-19 could lead to a global recession. And,
10: and therein lies the issue, because what's that recession? What are the pieces of that recession? So take as a, for example, travel, international air travel. Travel to Canada, tourism dollars, that accounts for significant parts of revenue in some places of the country. If you suddenly have empty planes coming across, if you suddenly have students, international students, not registering at universities. So this is, for a budgetary question, it goes beyond, do we have enough money for masks and tests and a potential vaccine? It's, are they analyzing the pockets that this could hit the the economy hard? And are there w- mitigation measures that they could roll out or that they want to roll out? Or do they do that thing that the governments have done in the past where they have that rainy day fund? And we'll see something in, you know, the budget that says we've set aside X billion of dollars right. as a what if fund. And that's enough. So we don't have to spend it if nothing happens, but we have it if something does.
0: Well, trillions have been knocked off the market and we'll see what happens there. Let me move to the conservative race. Friday was the deadline. No one else can get into the race, Sarah. Right now, I think we've got six or seven people now in the the race uh, who are you watching now as the main front runners and what are you looking for them to do between now and and when the, the race finally ends
1: well I mean I think the two obvious front runners are, are Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole um, interesting people to watch her are, are Marilyn uh, Gladu um, of course but um, when it comes to this race and how you win it it's got to be a you have to have a national uh, ground game. And, you know, I, I was at the Ontario PC convention on, on the weekend and it was uh, astounding to me to see how many O'Toole people were there and stickers were there and he was there working the crowd. Um, and Peter kind of came in and he was there for a short period of time and then kind of left, which I, I thought was uh, kind of puzzling, which is, you know, part of his campaign so far has been quite puzzling, um, been very tepid. We haven't heard a lot of policy positions from from anyone yet. Um, looking to have uh, somebody talk about a new playbook besides the ones that we've been using for the past 15 years. Yeah,
9: Tonda. Well, I think that all the candidates are working hard. Ontario where there's a lot of delegates to be had, or a lot of votes to be had among the membership. Alberta as well, you know, they're all, they're, they're flooding sort of the field uh, trying to shore up support at these early days, but it's very clear that O'Toole and McKay have, uh, I think, the, the biggest lead. They've got the biggest name recognition. Um, but, you know, at the end of the year, trivia quizzes will say who else was running. I mean, it's hard to name them mm-hmm. other than Marilyn Glad, who has a caucus profile. But I think that um, we won't see that debate until they actually start getting into some of their own policy rollout. Right now, they're concentrated on the massive logistics of just mounting a bid to run. I mean, there's also the, the issue. This there are still deadlines to enter this contest, right?
0: Yeah. The slate
10: of folks we have now, you know, between seven and nine, that, those aren't the people that are all going to be on the ballot. Because they've
0: got to get the 300,000. They have
10: to get to the next. And they're not going to be all in the they have debate to get either. To all of the, the mm-hmm. signatures. Yeah. And So after March 25th, I think that's the, the really the date that matters mm-hmm. in the in the race yeah. from a first date perspective. Folks on the ballot, and that's when I think you'll start to see policy. You'll start to see articulation of of a plan, such as there is in these types of things. Joyce,
0: and then there's other issues. We've talked a lot about the social conservative factor, their social conservative candidates like Derek Sloan in there, but now Michelle Rempel and three other MPs have released something called the Buffalo Declaration, talking about Alberta needs a fair shake, equalization formula is bad, uh, it's treated like a colony despite 10 years of Stephen Harper. What do you is that going to be a factor in reshaping how this race plays out? I don't think it's going to be a
11: factor. I think it's just an interesting sort of sideshow in a way. Um, you know this landlocked uh, province. Uh, look, I'm a Quebecer. I followed um, a, a couple of referendums uh, way back in, it, in its time. I mean, is it feasible? Is this even, or is this just a nana boo You know, if we don't get what we want, we are going to leave, which is really what this looks like. So, is there feasibility study? Is there, you know, anything there that a conservatives can look at seriously? Uh, the way Quebecers did. Look, some of us didn't look at it seriously. Some of us were not separatists. Some of us were federalists. You know, the, it, it seemed that it was a real. It was but real. I this think, is not I think, real. I, I think
9: what it is doing is giving voice to real Alberta concerns, and it's putting them yes. on right. the table to be yes. discussed by uh, in a and and in a race in a country overall, but in a race where the main contenders are from central and eastern Canada. Exactly. There isn't a Western yeah. voice in their own Conservative Party right now, who's prominent, who's mm-hmm. leading the way, and For voicing sure. that, and that concern. I mean, if we if we want to be sort
10: of cynical about it, right?
9: What's the political play? Let's look at that, mm. right? Why does
10: this come out now? Why is it yeah. put out now? Why? Why is it shaped the way it is is this a question of those four signatories are they looking for more signatories are they trying to form themselves into a block within the conservative party do they take this now to every leadership candidate and say exactly. what are you going to do yeah, yes la- or no and either i
0: endorse you or well, i but don't i mean, yeah, it was last but only one, four yeah, but
1: mp's that signed up
0: go ahead sir <laughs>
1: I'm just going to say, there's only four MPs that actually signed onto it, on onto it from, from all of Alberta. But I don't think it, we should be dismissive or, or trite about it. I mean, you know, the attention that was paid to the firewall. I mean, there is real uh, disaffection with the, with the country right now within Alberta. And it's not just Alberta Conservative MPs. And, you know, there's... Uh, um, and, and I think that kind of being dismissive about it is is not going to be helpful in bringing and finding ways to bring them back into the fold where they feel like they have a voice in Confederation as as opposed to a, a colony that feels that they, uh, they're they at the whims of the federal government uh, for any project that uh, goes beyond their, their border. Um, you know, and I think for the, the leadership candidates, uh, Tonda was right. You know, you don't really see anyone from the right. Uh, you don't have the reform side of the House kind of represented. I think, uh, you know, and, for, and that, that's a challenge for both Aaron right. and, and Peter. And I think you're seeing that with uh, Aaron's trying to tack a lot further right to the reform yeah. side yeah. of the party.
0: All right, I, I got to leave it there. But yeah, it does. All of a sudden, you get the Reform Party, yeah. those old memories of that. And we got to take that alienation seriously. We'll find out if it's got momentum in there. All right, Sarah, Steph, Ton, and Joyce, great to have all of you. Uh, and thanks, all of you, for watching. That brings us an end to this week. Thanks for watching. Lots to come. We will be back here in seven short days. Take good care.